Our scripture today is from the 62nd chapter of Isaiah, the first seven verses. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not remain quiet till her vindication shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. The nations will see your vindication and all your kings your glory. You will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. You will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. No longer will they call you deserted or name your land desolate, but you will be called Hephzibah and your land Beulah. For the Lord will take delight in you and your land will be married. As a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. I have posted watchmen on your walls, Jerusalem. They will never be silent, day or night. You who call on the Lord, give yourselves no rest, and give him no rest till he establishes Jerusalem and makes her praise of the earth. This is the Lord's word. Well, good morning. I don't think I said anything first service. I don't have uh, a speaking issue. I'm Scottish. Uh, it's just a funny accent that kids make, makes kids look at me funny. So um, I am I'm thrilled to be here at New Hope getting to speak today. Um, I, I mentioned this first service, but I... I love the people in your church. I've never gotten a visit. I have been in, I never got to the old building. I've been in this building uh, for some pastor things that happen in the city. But uh, when I think about uh, churches in the Portland metro area and their staff and people in their church, this is my favorite crew of people. Um, so I, uh, yeah, yeah, they, sh- they should get applause for that. I am, um, John has been uh, just an amazing support to me. Uh, I love that man dearly. He checks in on me all the time. And in many senses, in the role that I'm playing, I feel like I can attribute much of my ability to keep persevering to John's constant encouragement. Uh, I've known Mike and his wife for a long time. Uh, Scott and Sherry, I said this earlier, they, um, on your elder board, they have walked with my wife and I through some of the toughest things that we've experienced. And just having them here is a gift. Denise, uh, we're on retreat with Denise and John and Mike and Jess and others once a month. Jess serves on the Prayer PDX team with me. So you just have an amazing group of people. I don't know Seth super well yet. We've interacted a couple of times, but man, you're a power couple and your voices are amazing. And Jerry, you're just like fierce, gentle love bomb. I love it. Um, so... Thank you, Jerry. So anyway, I'm I'm thrilled to be here. Um, To start this morning, though, we are visual people. Uh, You know this well at the church who value creativity. So to to start, I want to root us in an image that I think is really helpful when it comes to thinking about prayer. And the image is simply the image of fire. Uh, And this is a, a, a biblical image that's threaded from beginning to end. I don't know if you've thought about it. And, but we can go all the way back to Genesis 1 where God creates the heavens and the earth and 
he makes day and night. And then in order to govern the day, he throws this flaming ball of fire into the sky, calls it the sun, and it dictates the window in which we do most of the work that we do. You can fast forward a little bit further into Exodus where Moses encounters God at the burning bush and receives the call to rescue the people of Israel. You can follow them through the wilderness as God gives them a power of cloud, pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night that enables them to navigate the wilderness. You can go forward to places like Elijah where he's calling fire down from heaven to defeat the prophets of Baal um, or the moment on the top of the mountain where he hears he's looking for God and he's not in the wind and he's not in the earthquake and he's not in the fire but in the still small voice. You can jump into the New Testament and you see God as the refining fire. You see tongues of fire falling on the believers at Pentecost. You can go all the way to the end, to the fires of judgment and places like Revelation. Fire threads from beginning to end of the scriptures. And I think fire is a really powerful illustration when it comes to thinking about prayer. So I want to look at two manifestations of fire. The first one, they're contrasting. So the first one is a bonfire. Um, you may want to jump back a year and a half or so ago to the forest fires might be a more apt illustration if you remember not being able to breathe in the Portland metro area. Um, but think of a bonfire, think of a forest fire. What are the words that come to mind? It's raw, it's untamable, it's uncontrollable, it's, it's dangerous, it's indiscriminate. It doesn't care what's in its path. Um, this raw, potent power of God. Places like Deuteronomy 2 and Hebrews will describe God as a consuming fire, burning up all the, the brokenness in the world. When it comes to prayer... I think sometimes we forget that in the act of prayer, we come into contact with this raw, fiery power that is the God that we worship. Every time you turn your heart toward him, or you turn your words in his direction, or you ask him to move in the world, we are interacting with this ferocity, and we've been given a charge to partner with it in the work that it does in the world. I'm not saying God is a fire. No, I'm not saying fire is God, just to be clear there. <laughs> but he is like this ferocious fire. So on the other end of the spectrum, you have a different image that carries very different connotations. And it's the image of a candlelit dinner. You think about what is entailed in this moment, uh, and I know you've spent time in this series talking about this. This church has leaned in a lot to the intimacy of God. But a candlelit dinner where you sit across the table from someone that you love, you gaze into their eyes, you study every aspect of who they are. It's a, an experience of self-disclosure where you share secrets and dreams and, and you hear them as they reveal themselves back to you. It's that moment where your heart starts to flutter as you reach for the butter and their finger touches your finger and it's like, oh, they touched me. Um, some of you might be there right now. Some of you, that's a long time ago. Self-confession, I hate walking with people in that part of the relationship journey where they're like, do they like me? Do they not like me? Oh, I think she likes me. I don't know. And, and I get it wrong all the time. <laughs> but these two images in prayer come together. And I think it's easy to lean on one side or the other. 
But every time we come in prayer, we come through this moment of intimacy where we connect with this God who loves us, where we share the desires of our hearts, the dreams of our future, where we listen to him as he speaks back to us. And in that place, we are also encountering the raw, ferocious fire that is the power of God that has the ability to consume all the brokenness in us, that has the ability to throw stars into existence, to upend nations, to overthrow thrones, and to transform your life and the community around us. In prayer, these two images come together. My heart breaks, though, when I think about the prayer experience of the Western church. I don't know if this is true of you, but when I think of prayer in the West, this is the image that comes to mind instead. An artificial tea light. It's safe. It's controllable. Uh, it's fake. Um, how would you feel if you went to dinner with your loved one and you sit across the table with one little artificial tea light in the middle, not quite as romantic. But so much of prayer in the West is powerless. It lacks intimacy. It lacks depth. It lacks understanding of the magnitude of what has been given to us. And this is not how it's supposed to be. I think it's interesting when you're reading the Gospels, Jesus has lots to say and lots to say about his people and how we're supposed to live and how we're supposed to act. There's only one place where he defines what his house is supposed to be. And he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Notice he doesn't say my house will be a place of preaching and Bible study. He doesn't say my house will be a house of worship or creative arts. He doesn't say my house will be a house of service projects and social justice. He says my house will be called a house of prayer. Because Jesus understood that in prayer, we have this intimate experience with God while touching the raw, ferocious power that can transform the world. And Jesus understood that if his church focused on being people of prayer, that transformation in them would lead them out into the world to do all the other things that he was asking them to do, and transformation would happen. I think it's interesting also when you look at the disciples who are interacting with Jesus and having lots of conversations with him, there's only one place where they look at Jesus and say, Jesus, would you teach us this thing? Jesus was out praying, and he comes back from prayer, and the disciples look at him and say, Lord, teach us to pray. Because they saw something in him in his life of prayer. They saw the intimacy that he had with the Father. They saw the way the power of God was moving in his life and through them. And so the cry of their hearts, Lord, teach us how to pray. Simple question for you. How are you doing in the area of prayer? Is the cry of your heart to the Lord and your growth in this season, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach me to be a man or a woman of prayer. Martin Luther, who's a significant figure in the history, particularly of the Protestant church, he uh, is known for saying this. He says, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. 
To be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. So think for a moment how long you can hold your breath for. I should make you try and hold it for 10 minutes and see if anyone keels over. That's how long in your Christian journey you should last without prayer. Prayer is the lifeblood of our faith. Jesus told us that uh, apart from him, we can do nothing. Oh, there's lots we can do. God's given us a body that goes out into the world and does lots of activity, lots of sinning. Um, That's just me, I guess. Okay. Um, There's lots that we use this body for, but Jesus tells us, apart from me, you can do nothing. We can do nothing of lasting value apart from his spirit. And it's prayer that makes the difference. You can open the Bible and read it, but it's the heart of prayer that invites the Holy Spirit to illuminate the words so that we can understand it. We can sit like we just did and sing incredible worship songs, but we can just go through the motions of singing words. It's the heart of prayer that turns those words into a cry to God that transforms us and brings Him the greatest glory. We can do all the service projects in the world, helping all of the needs in the city around us. It's the heart of prayer that turns those moments into an encounter where God can be seen and felt and known and his transformative presence can come. You can wake up tomorrow morning and go to the office to do your job or care for your kids in your retirement. It's It's the moment of prayer, it's prayer in our heart that turns those everyday activities into moments where God is present and changing and transforming the work that we do. It's no more possible to uh, to be a Christian without prayer than it is to be alive without breathing. I want to talk a bit about intercession or intercessory prayer, and and before we go any further, I, I just want to demystify the word. When people hear the word intercession or when they hear intercessor, intercessory prayer, I feel like there's a big weight comes on us around what that word means. So I'm going to give you the most groundbreaking, life-transforming definition of intercession. Are you ready for this? Hold on to the edge of your seats. Intercession is offering prayer to God on behalf of others. Wow. All right. That's... Intercession is nothing fancier than just praying for the people around about us. It's the core of what we're called to as Christians in our interaction with other people. And some people will say intercession is to stand in the gap. So in intercession, we insert ourselves in between someone and their relationship with God. And we stand in the gap and we we ask God to move on their behalf. Intercession looks at the brokenness in the world and sees the brokenness that is around us in situations and societies. And it looks at that brokenness and it looks at the word of God and his revelation and what his kingdom is supposed to look like. And it stands in the gap between the broken reality we're in and the vision of the kingdom where there's peace and harmony and healing and wholeness and joy in his presence intercession stands in the gap it fixes its eyes on the future reality and it calls that reality to manifest in the presence so that his kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven intercession is one of the highest expressions of love that we can express in intercession 
we carry someone in our heart into the throne room of God and in the middle of that encounter with him, we offer them to him and we ask that he would do his best in their life. We try and catch a vision of what he wants to do in them and through them and what wholeness might look like, what ministry fruit might be in their life and we plead with God to make that a reality in their life. Intercession is our greatest expression of love for the people around about us. I want to have us listen again to Isaiah 62 in this primary text. Pay attention to how Isaiah has fixed his eyes on a future vision. We're at a point in the story where Israel isn't in exile yet, but they're about to be. Um, they're living in sin. They're rebelling against the Lord. They're sacrificing children to idols. They're worshiping false gods. They're killing one another. They're intermarrying in ways that had been forbidden at this point in the law. Every possible thing that they've been asked to do, they're breaking. And yet in the middle of this moment, Isaiah looks ahead and sees the vision for what God wants it to be and invites God's people into this role of intercession. And just for fun, notice that there's some fire imagery in this passage as it talks about prayer. So Isaiah says, For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not remain quiet till her vindication shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. The nations will see your vindication and all the kings your glory. You will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. You'll be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. No longer will they call you deserted or name your land desolate, but you'll be called Hephzibah, which means delight in, and your land Beulah, which means married. For the Lord will take delight in you and your land will be married. As a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. Isaiah looks out at a world that is broken, a people that are rejecting the Lord, rebelling at him at every possible turn. And he looks ahead to this promise that God has given of Israel vindicated, of them given a new identity and a new name, and this transformation as they become uh, the celebrated entity in the world. I think this is what God is calling us to do as intercessors in the city that we're living to grab hold of this vision of the kingdom, to look at the brokenness that we're around, and rather than complain and gripe about the brokenness that we see, we take those longings of our heart and we turn them into prayer and we ask him to bring the promises that he's made to bear on the situation where we are. We're called to be intercessors. It's not enough that Jesus wants his house to be a house of prayer. It's not enough that the disciples were intrigued and, and, and said, Lord, teach us to pray. But Scripture commands us to be people of prayer. There's multiple places in the New Testament where we are commanded to pray. It's not an optional extra as Christians. If it's a command in Scripture where we fail to live the command, we're walking in sin by not doing the things that God has called us to do. So he has commanded us to pray. Here's a few of the places where God commands this. So you can go to Luke 18 where Jesus tells the parable of the persistent widow and he, he tells the story and he says, I'm telling you this story so that you'll learn to pray and not give up. 
He can jump to Romans 12, 12, where the people are told to be faithful in prayer. Uh, Ephesians 6, pray in the Spirit on all occasions. This is the armor of God. He's telling them all the defensive armor that they have, and then two offensive weapons. One, the sword of the Spirit, and the other, praying in the Spirit at all times with all kinds of requests. Philippians 4, um, and everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And then what happens? The peace that transcends our understanding will guard our heart and our mind in Christ Jesus. Colossians, devote yourselves to prayer. First Thessalonians, be faithful. Pray continually. Um, and then one of my favorites, and this is geared towards you, if you're in a leadership role, whether it's in the church or in your home, First um, Samuel 12, 23 is a favorite verse of mine. And at this point in the journey, Samuel is stepping out of leadership over Israel and Saul is coming in to be the first king. And during the transition, he's given this kind of farewell. In the middle of this farewell, he, he looks at the people and he says, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you. And I'll teach you the good and right way. Only be sure to fear the Lord and serve him with all your heart. Consider what great works he's done for you. Samuel, in stepping out of leadership, not in this leadership role anymore, understood that as a leader of God's people, we are sinning against the Lord if we fail to pray for the people that he's put us in responsibility over. It can be a tough word for us as leaders. God wants us praying. He wants to hear our voice. He knows our needs before we ask them, so he doesn't need us to tell him what he wants to do, but he wants the interaction And God wants to partner with us. He wants partnership with humanity as we work in the world. There's a a quote by John Wesley that I've I've sat with a lot. I wrestled, do I agree with this? Do I not agree with this? I'm going to submit it to you to see what you think. John Wesley said, God does nothing on the earth save an answer to believing prayer. In John Wesley's thinking, God will not move on the earth outside of partnership with us in prayer. So, you don't need to agree that that's true, but let me just pose this for a moment. What if that is true? That when God wants to save the life of someone in Iraq, that he stirs the heart of someone here in Portland to pray, and through that prayer enables them to pour out his power on the life of someone else? What if God wants to work in the life of your neighbor or your child or your spouse or your parent or your friend, and the thing standing between that person and and the power of God moving in their lives is he's waiting on someone that knows them, calling out on him to do a work in their life? If this is true, this is potent. In my own Bible reading right now, I've been reading through the prophets and I just got finished with Ezekiel and I was really struck by this verse in Ezekiel 22. Uh, God is saying to Ezekiel, I looked for someone among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so I would not have to destroy it. But I found no one. What if there's things God is wanting to do in this church or in our city or in your family, but when he's looking around for someone to stand in the gap, he sees no one because we're too busy binge watching Netflix. We're too busy scrolling through our phone. 
We're too busy doing another helping project that we weren't asked to do, where we've inserted ourselves in someone else's life and we're being a busybody. What happens if we're just lounging on the couch, not doing the work that we're supposed to do, and God is looking for someone who will call out his power, and no one is available? We know we're supposed to pray. It's one of the easiest Christian activities we can do. I don't know why it's so hard for us to be able to do it. So the instruction or or the truth that we're commanded to pray is not the breathtaking part of this. The part that's breathtaking and mind-blowing to me is that God has obligated himself to respond to the prayers of his people. God has bound himself to have to respond when his people pray. Look at Isaiah 62 again, the latter part of this. So it started, for Zion's sake I will not keep silent, for Jerusalem's sake I will not remain quiet. Fast forward, I have posted watchmen on your walls, Jerusalem. They will never be silent day or night. You who call on the Lord, give yourself no rest and give me no rest until I establish Jerusalem and make her the praise of the earth. God's telling his people, I want you to give yourself no rest and give me no break until I do the very things that I have promised I will do. God is obligating himself. You could take this passage and you could substitute Jerusalem for the city where we're living. For Portland's sake, I will not keep silent. For southeast Portland, I will not remain quiet till her vindication shines out like the dawn and our salvation like a blazing torch. I have posted watchmen on your walls, O Portland. They will never be silent day or night. So you who call on the Lord, give yourself no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Portland and makes her the kingdom of God that it's intended to be. One of my favorite biographies is uh, an A.T. Pearson biography of George Mueller. Um, If you don't know George Mueller, Google him or get that book and read it. You will be inspired. But he was an intercessor that did incredible work back in Bristol, England. Um, And as he shares about his prayer journey, one of the things he talks about, he calls it holy argument. So he says, when you're praying and you're interceding for things, build your case like a lawyer would going before a judge. So he's like, I want you to build a holy argument so that you can go into the presence of God and you can use that argument to show him that he is obligated to answer the prayers that we pray. So he says, find the promises in scripture that say the things that God has said he'll do and tell him, you said you'll do this, so you have to do it. Um, So we we have this practice, well, you're not doing it, this, this is his caveat, you're not doing it to convince God that he has to move, you're doing it to convince yourself that God has said he'll do the things that he'll do. Holy argument is a practice in building our own faith. Um, and so that's what we're going to do. So in our, our church, um, before our services, we, we're praying for the service, and at the end of the time together, uh, we say to the people who are all praying, so here's what you're going to do, out loud, all together right now, I want you to answer the question, why should God answer the prayers that you're praying? And I have them tell God why he's obligated himself to answer. So here's some of the scriptures that I use and some of the things I pray as I'm telling God why he should answer the prayers that we're praying. So first one, James 4 says, you don't have because you don't ask. Like God, so I'm asking. You're telling me that I don't have because I don't ask, so now I'm asking, so you have to give. 
right? He said it. Um, John 15, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask whatever you want and I'll do it. God, I'm doing my best to abide in you and your word is in me and so I'm asking. So you said you'll do it. Um, John 14, ask for anything in my name and I will do it. And so as we're praying, I'm going, okay, I'm asking in your name. It's not a formula. It means am I aligned with your will? So God, I'm asking for people to be saved. You say you don't want anyone to perish. I'm praying for the unity of the church in Portland and you prayed that we would be one just as you were one. I'm praying that our church would be fruitful. You want our church to bear fruit. I want our church to love better. You said people will know your disciples by our love for one another. I'm asking you to do the things that you said you'd do. So you have to do it. You don't have a choice. Matthew 7, ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. And he goes on to say, if earthly fathers can give good gifts to their kids, how much more is that father going to give good gifts to those who love him? So I'm like, God, you give better gifts than we can ask for. Second Chronicles 7.14, if you jump back into the Old Testament, if my people who are called by my name uh, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear their prayers, I will forgive their sins, and I will heal their land. And so God, we're humbling, we're confessing, we're separating ourselves from wickedness, so do the things that you say you'll do. And obviously Isaiah 61, God, you told us to give you no rest until you establish the things that you're doing. So a little caveat, God has obligated himself to respond to our prayers, but here's a couple of qualifiers. God has obligated himself to respond to our prayers of helplessness and of righteousness. So we see all the way through the scriptures when people are oppressed and taken advantage of, whether they know the Lord or not, as they cry out of helplessness, God moves. And we know in our own lives, when life feels helpless, when we feel that we have no power and we don't know the way out, those are often the times when we pray most fervently. God has obligated himself when we cry out of helplessness, but God has obligated himself to, to respond to our prayers of righteousness. So James says the prayers of the righteous are powerful and effective. Again, in my reading in Ezekiel this last week, end of Ezekiel 20, God's talking and he says to Isaiah, say to the Israelites, this is what the sovereign Lord says, will you defile yourselves the way your ancestors did and lust after their vile images? Will you offer your gifts, the sacrifice of your children in the fire? You continue to defile yourselves with all your idols to this day. Am I to let you inquire of me, you Israelites? As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I will not let you inquire of me. God has a standard, and there are some things that we're asking God to do, and we're frustrated that he's not answering the prayers that we're praying, while the night before we're looking at pornography, uh, we're criticizing the people next to us, we're misusing our finances, we're lusting after the things of the world, we're chasing all of these idols, building our own kingdoms instead of his, and then we're wondering why he's not answering the prayers that we're praying. So for some of you in the room today, um, there are things that you're asking God to do and things that you're longing to see God do. And the reason that he's not able to respond is because of the unrighteousness that you are willingly 
allowing and engaging in in your life. And if you want to have the power and prayer that God offers to us, your job is to walk in repentance, to humble yourself, to seek his face, to set aside our wickedness, and, and to come into his presence. Here's the caveat with that. And it's one of the challenging things with prayer when we're 2,000 years after Jesus died. Here's the caveat. Jesus died and rose from the dead. He took our unrighteousness on him and now his righteousness is on us. So to some degree, our prayers are always the prayers of the righteous because he's declared us righteous. So even in our unrighteousness, God is still obligating himself to respond. But we allow that to permit us to remain in willful sin. Oh, you'll forgive me, so it doesn't matter. I can do it one more time. There are things that God will not do in your life if you don't get the sin out of the way first. So will we walk in repentance? Three quick sub-points here um, as we're kind of coming into the home straight here. So first one, you were designed for partnership with God. So in Genesis, we are, uh, Adam and Eve were put in the garden to be in unbroken communion with God and given responsibility to have dominion over the earth. And the way things were supposed to go is they're supposed to partner with God and expanding his rule and his will all over the earth. That's how we were created, to live in harmony and in partnership with him. But we know how the story goes. Adam and Eve sin, they reject the way of God and they choose instead to, to live out of their own ability. And so we've inherited this pattern where we choose to live our lives and our faith lives outside of partnership with God. We choose to live our normal lives and our Christian lives prayerlessly. That's a result of the fall. But we were designed for partnership. It wasn't supposed to be that way. So we're designed for partnership with them. Secondly, God has endowed us with the power uh, to make a difference. So we're made in the image of God. I don't know if you've thought this through um, before. We're made in the image of God. God. The Bible tells us that in the beginning, God speaks. And with his words, everything that we know comes into existence. God breathes and life is born. So God has the power with his words to birth life in the world. And we as humans have been given a similar power. We can use our words to bring life. And we can use our words to bring harm. Um, a favorite proverb of mine is Proverbs 18.21, and it says, the tongue has the power to bring life or death. So you have been given the ability with this tiny little thing here to look at the person next to you and build them up, speak encouragement and life into their situation, and you have been given the power, and you've all been the victim of this, of someone's tongue bringing death and tearing you down and criticizing you, and it cuts us to the core. God has given us the ability to bring life. And part of that ability is prayer, because in prayer, we connect with the source of life, and we ask him to pour that life into the situations around us. So God has given you, in that tiny little thing waggling in your mouth, or with your hands as you communicate and write. He has given you the ability uh, to bring life into this world as we partner with him in prayer to pour that ferocious fire upon the earth. Little caveat here. 
In the fall, Satan has his pattern. We know his pattern, right? He looks at Adam and Eve and says, did God really say that you shouldn't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? So Satan's primary tactic is to make us question whether God's word is true. Is it really true? Um, Did God really say that he has created us for partnership with him? Does God really say that he's obligated himself to respond? Does God really want to use me to make a difference in the world? So Satan wants us questioning our identity and our belief in who he is and what he can do. Um, But in that fall situation where he tempts them, if you eat, did God really say don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Well, yeah, if we eat from it, we'll die. Well, no, if you eat from it, what's gonna happen is you're gonna have more knowledge. God is holding out on you. So when it comes to intercession, when it comes to prayer, when it comes to asking God to move in the world, there are two questions that are biggest stumbling blocks in asking God to move. One of them, is he able? Is God able to do this thing that I want to see him do? The answer is yes, he is able. (laughs) The second question that we wrestle with, and I think is the one that we wrestle with more often, is does he care or is he willing I know he's able, but is he willing? And uh, the answer is yes, he cares. And yes, he's willing to move. And yes, he wants us to. Um, You're going to have a message in a few weeks on unanswered prayer. um, But I wish we could talk about unanswered prayer for the next couple hours. Um, There's a great book by Pete Gregg of 24-7 Prayer called God on Mute. If you are wrestling with unanswered prayer, I would say get hold of that book and read it. It is one of the most encouraging and inspiring books. I don't know how anyone can write about unanswered prayer and leave you wanting to pray more. Um, but that, that's a really good book um, for that. So two, two obstacles to our prayer. Do we believe he's able? Do we really believe he cares? So you were designed for partnership with him. He's given you the power to make a difference. And then thirdly, you have been deliberately and strategically placed. So there are no accidents. You are not in your situation by accident. God has strategically placed you to impact people and situations. God wants you, when God said, "Eh, my house will become a house of prayer, right? He's not saying, "Eh, we're going to gather in churches and be prayer people, Uh, He's saying, as we know from Peter, that you are the living house. You're stones in the living house. You are supposed to be a walking, talking house of prayer so that everywhere you go, you carry his presence. Everywhere you go, people are encountering him through what you're doing. So you've been strategically placed to impact the lives of people in the situations that you're in. So if you think about your neighbor or your friend or your spouse or your workplace or the neighborhood you're in or the, the, the issues of brokenness in the world that you find yourself surrounded with, God has strategically placed you there so that you can use that tongue of yours and that heart of yours to call his power to bear on that situation, to bring the transformation that he is longing to do in that place. Final point. Something powerful happens when we pray together rather than separate. So God has obligated himself to respond to the prayers of all his people, but he's obligated himself in a special way when his people come together. So where two or three gather together, there I am in your midst giving you this authority to bind and to loose. 
Um, something happens when you wrestle with those two questions. Is God able and does he care? As we come together in intercession and I'm like, I don't know if God's able to do this. And Mike looks at me and he goes, well, I believe he can. So borrow my faith and let's pray together that God will do this. I, I just don't know if he wants to. I don't know if he loves me enough. Denise is like, God cares. Borrow my faith. I have faith that God can move in this situation. And let's pray together. A couple of passages here. Um, just to show you that the, the scriptural emphasis on the corporate prayers of the church. Acts 1, when they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. They all joined together constantly in prayer. Uh, a little later in Acts 4, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. All the believers were of one heart and mind. A little later, brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you. We're going to return the responsibility for caring for the, the, the widows to you. And we as the leaders are going to give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. Acts at the inception of the church shows all the time the church would come together corporately to intercede and what's the statement that's always repeated? And thousands were added daily to their number. I wonder sometimes if the reason we're not seeing thousands coming to the Lord and added daily is because we've lost this heart to join together in humble prayer. Final quote as we wrap up. Perhaps my favorite quote on prayer. Pete Gregg said, God is mobilizing an army and it's a broken army that marches on its knees. God is building an army. It's not a triumphal army that's going to overthrow the world. It's a broken army on its knees. Notice it's not a bunch of righteous people that have it all together, have all the theology figured out, that never get anything wrong. It's a broken people. And it's not even people standing strongly in the presence of God. It's people that can't do anything other than be on their knees and crawl. God wants to bring his kingdom to bear around us. And he's building an army for that purpose, a broken army that will march on its knees. We often use words in prayer. I think the beauty of this passage is sometimes the strongest prayers we can pray have no words. And the prayers when we can't put words to how we're feeling and the broken groan of our heart and the heartbreak that we feel, and we just sit in God's presence broken. And we say, God, I've got no words, so I'm just going to feel this brokenness in your presence, knowing that you understand everything that it is. And we just groan and weep in his presence. And in response to that, the Lord will move. So let's go back to the image that we started with of fire. The bonfire and the candlelit dinner. God wants to use you to pour his power on the earth. So what do you want God to do in your life? As you look at the people around you, where do you want to see God move? What transformation do you want to see in this church and in the city around you? Will you step up to the mark? Will you fill the gap? Will you become a watchman on the wall? Let me pray.
God, thank you that you want partnership with us. Thank you that you've obligated yourself to respond to our prayers. Thank you for this church who desire to shepherd and prayer and impact this city. God, would you help us to be a people uh, and would you help the church of Portland to be a people who give themselves no rest and give you no rest until you establish things the way they're supposed to be. Would you pour your power through us into the world around us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.